Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Well, as we begin this morning, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is our text. And we ended last Sunday looking at chapters, uh, verses 10 to 16 in chapter 2 with the Apostle Paul reminding us that those who possess or claim to possess the Holy Spirit, believers, uh, ought to possess the same mind. We are to have the same mind, and that mind is the mind of Christ, the mind of Christ. This is just another way of him saying what he wrote back in chapter 1, verse 10, that we are to, when he called Christ as witness, really, in verse 10 of chapter 1, exhorting us as believers to all agree and to be united in the same mind and having the same judgment. Everyone, equally, as Paul writes to this church, are told to forget and to set aside their petty personal differences and to stop elevating their preferred personalities. And instead, we are to be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. In other words, uh, to be made complete, uh, that term has the idea of something broken being put back together. Think about mending a net or um, a joint being dislo- that's dislocated being reset or a bone that is cracked being, being reset, a torn garment being sewn back together. That's the picture of being made complete. His point is that any church that has or is even starting to be torn apart into partisan pieces is to mend itself back together, and they are to do that by having the same mind and having the same judgment, same judgment. They are to have the same outlook, orientation, or attitude internally. That's sound doctrine, same truth, holding fast to the truth. And then with that same mindset, Christ's mindset, in love, they are to make space for the, the otherness of others externally. So Paul's saying you and I need to voluntarily set aside our own rights, our own preferences, our own desires for the well-being and unity of the church as a whole. And that was not happening in the Corinthian church. As we read these opening chapters Uh, As we come to chapter 3 this morning, Paul is going to reiterate to them once again that their behavior has outed them, if you will. They are claiming to be walking in wisdom. They are, uh, but the wisdom that they are walking in, the harvest of that wisdom is the bitter fruit of quarrels over superficial things and a tearing down of the very church for which Christ has sacrificed his Life. So Paul's argument, beginning in chapter 2, verse 6, into verse 16, is a bit of a digression, and it is a little bit roundabout, but it really isn't that complicated. What he is doing in those verses is hammering home that the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified for the salvation of sinners, that message is God's wisdom for sinners revealed to us through the regenerating and illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. And he says everyone who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, the natural man or woman, the one who is perishing, that person is spiritually deaf and ultimately reviles and rejects the good news of the gospel. But anyone who possesses the Holy Spirit, the spiritual man, 
the spiritual woman, the, the one who is being saved, they have spiritual ears to hear and receive and rest and remain in the good news. So the spirit who is God and perfectly knows God's thoughts, he is the key to our understanding and our embracing and our dwelling uh, on Christ and his indwelling our hearts through faith. That we don't know anything about God truly or trustingly apart from the Holy Spirit. And the Corinthians, at least the majority of them, as, Paul, as far as Paul's concerned, he believes they have received the Holy Spirit and that they were the recipients of the Spirit's gracious work. That's why he said in verse 12, he says, we, this is including them and him, we have received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God. He says, you and I are citizens of a different kingdom. You and I are, are we belong to a different world order. Uh, we, we've received the spirit who is from God. He says, so live like it. Live like it. Stop living like you haven't been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son because you have been. You have been. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the one who knows all things, even the depths of God himself. He lives within your heart. He's teaching you and revealing to you all God's wisdom through his word, and yet... And yet you are still pursuing the wisdom of the world and as a consequence, coming at one another. Paul says this ought not to be. He says your pursuit of worldly wisdom is stripping the gospel message of its impact. And the message has, and, excuse me, and that, that commitment to worldly wisdom has spawned every manner of competing rivalry in the singular church for whom Christ has died. This is not acceptable to Paul. And it shouldn't be acceptable to us either. That's why he bites back the way he does in chapter 1, verse 13, where he says, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or are you baptized in the name of Paul? Uh, the obvious answer is, of course not. Of course not. No, you cannot be, his point is, you cannot claim to be spirit-filled and at the same time be at war with other believers in the body of Christ. Those are mutually exclusive options. It's like a light switch. A light switch is either on or it's off. It cannot at the same time be on and off. But the problem is the Corinthians, they thought of themselves as spirit-filled. In fact, they boasted in it, and we'll see that later on in the letter. But in reality, they were divided, bitterly divided against one another. They were trying to turn the light switch on and off at the same time. And Paul, quite frankly, is not having any of it. You see believers doing this in the church even today. There are believers who claim to be spirit-filled, and all they ever do is quarrel and fight with other Christians. Christians in their churches, Christians in other churches, all they ever do is pick fights with other brothers and sisters in Christ and, and separate themselves into ever more insular pockets of theological purity. These are the discernment bloggers and the 
discernment podcasters and the self-appointed heretic hunters who are constantly pronouncing anathemas over anyone and everyone who has even the slightest bit of deviation from their preferred voices. These are the factious people Paul warns us about becoming or even tolerating in the church in Titus 3, verse 9, where he says, Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. These are the ones whom Paul warns Timothy about in Timothy chapter 6, who have a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise, he says, envy and strife and abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. They're also the people in the church who are constantly comparing and criticizing their fellow believers and their leaders against the standard of their personal preferences and preferred personalities. They wouldn't say this, but in their heart, they believe they are the only true spiritual Christians within 100 miles. And often they hop from church to church and land there for very short periods of time and eventually leave because they can never find anybody to match their impossible standards. Paul's point in these opening chapters and the thrust of his correction as he moves from chapter 2 into chapter 3 is this. People who are truly of the Spirit, spiritual, Christians, they allow the Spirit of God to forge within them the mindset of Christ. That's what he says at the end of verse 16. We have the mind of Christ. In other words, we are Christ-like. However, he says, you cannot believably claim to be Christ-like and at the same time constantly be coming at one another in a spirit of rivalry. There seems, on the face of it, as you look at the Corinthian church, there seems to be a bit of a spiritual identity crisis going on. On the one hand, they are people who possess the Holy Spirit. They've received the Spirit who is from God. But on the other hand, they are those who are living like the, the unbelievers of this present age. This is how they conduct themselves. They operate like those on a purely horizontal level. And Paul's words in verses 1 to 6, by way of this very sharp contrast, call on them, and it calls on us, really. It moves from them to us into the present to stop thinking and to stop acting like those without the Spirit and to recognize who they are and to start living like those with the Holy Spirit. He shows us two very different ways of thinking and behaving in the body of Christ. One is fleshly and the other spiritual. One is childlike and the other is Christ-like. One is infantile and the other is mature. And then he concludes in verses 7 to 9 with some very practical takeaways by way of implication. He gives us the application in the text to help us think rightly about our calling and the responsibility we have to make and mature disciples of Christ. So that's where we're going this morning. So he begins with a contrast. The first way of thinking and behaving in the body of Christ is laid out to us in verses 1 to 4. And that way is infantile. It is childlike. 
And Paul minces no words with this group as he writes to them. He is, if, if, if you think he's been subtle up to this point, you realize now he's done being subtle. He's done beating around the bush by indirect arguments. He, he basically takes out the gun and points it at them in verses 1 to 4. And he says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? For one says, for when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? Paul says, you call yourself spiritual. Christians, I'm here to tell you, you're not acting like it. You're fleshly. You're, you think you're so grown up that you've moved on from the foolishness of the message preached of the cross and Christ crucified to, to bigger things and more noble things I'm here to tell you you're not. You're infantile. You think you're godly, you've, that you've ascended to the hill of the Lord onto, to some higher spiritual plane. I'm here to tell you you're acting like mere men. The, the word pictures that Paul uses in these opening verses are relentless. He, he just keeps coming at them. And there is a Costco-sized irony in their words and Paul's rebuke here. Because the Corinthians, they thought they were the most mature godly Christians. They believed that in their heart of hearts, that they were super godly. They thought of themselves as the grown-ups in the church. And they really should have been, because they have the Holy Spirit. But because they are looking down on the gospel and the message of the gospel and the, the lowliness of that and Paul's humble reliance upon the Holy Spirit to do its work... And they look at that teaching and they say, that's just milk for babies. We've graduated to the, big, the bigger things and better things. He says, they have arrogantly abandoned Jesus Christ and him crucified. They have turned their back on Paul who speaks in weakness and with the fear of the Lord and with much trembling. And they have replaced that for something that looks like solid food, something that looks like it has nutritional value. Things like, he says in chapter 2, superiority of speech and persuasive words of wisdom, force of personality, things that the world looks at and, and elevates and, and emulates and looks up to. He says, you think you're so godly, so mature, so Christ-like. He says, I cannot even talk to you as though you were spiritual men. I have to talk to you like you're babies in Christ. I had to give you milk to drink, not solid food. Those of us who have had or have young children, or even you younger folks that have been around younger children, you know, you just can't, you can't just give a baby a New York strip. You just can't. Right? They, don't, they, don't, they don't have the equipment in their bodies to handle that. 
They don't have teeth to chew. And even if they could get the food down, they don't have an intestinal system that can even digest it and to absorb it. That You cannot give a steak to a baby. And that's what was, Paul said, I, that's the problem I have with you. I cannot give you the meat. If, if you could even get it down, you couldn't even digest it and absorb it and benefit from it. Your infants in Christ. Why? Why couldn't he give them the solid food? Why couldn't he say what he needed to say? He tells them in verse 3. He says, for you are still fleshly. The, the beginning of verse 3 is a, has a causal force to it. Because you are still fleshly. You're still fleshly. Now this term fleshly is actually different than the term in chapter 2 verse 14 for the natural man or the natural woman. It's a, it's a different term. The, the word he uses here in verse 3 for fleshly calls attention to their physical dimension of their existence in contrast to the spiritual dimension of their existence. It's a contrast here. And, uh, and his use of the term in verse 3 is a, is a serious gut punch. It's a serious gut punch. He doesn't just say, you are fleshly. He says, you're still fleshly. <laughs> Emphasis there is on still, as in you were before, when I was with you before, and in subsequent visits, and you're still like that. It's worth noting here that his change of terms is intentional. It's intentional. The natural man, chapter 2, verse 14, is a person he described as totally devoid of the Holy Spirit. There's somebody who cannot even, on any level, receive God's word because it would just be foolishness to them. So he shifts here in verse chapter 3 and verse 3 to the term fleshly. He says, you're thinking and acting from the perspective of your sinful flesh. It's a fitting description. He avoids accusing them of not having the Spirit at all. That's not what he's saying as he writes to them here. But at the same time, they have to face the fact of what their conduct communicates about their spiritual maturity. And again, he's not creating a third category of Christian here, the carnal Christian. That's not what he's saying. His concern has always been through this whole section the same. He wants to jar them loose from thinking and acting like the people of the present age, like unbelievers. He has every reason to believe the best about them, that they are truly born again, but their conduct is infantile at best. It is infantile at best, and it may even be evidence of their lack of True conversion, time will tell. But in any case, they are thinking, he says, and acting and living from the perspective of their sinful flesh. How can he say that, though? How does he know that? I mean, he just sort of says it in verse 3, because you're still fleshly. Why? How can you know that for sure, Paul? He goes on to give us the evidence for that verdict in the latter part of verse 3. For since, on account of the fact, he says, there is still jealousy and strife among you. In other words, the reason Paul can call them spiritual infants 
and fleshly is because of how they were treating other believers in the church. The four in verse 3 is, again, could be translated because. The ground, the reason, the cause for me making this verdict about you is your thinking and acting with jealousy and strife. That was the undeniable proof that they were still immature. To strike, again, no, the word for uh, strife here in verse 3 is the same word that's translated quarrels in chapter 1. Verse 11, it's the same term. But to that term, quarrels or strife, he adds now jealousy. There's jealousy among you. This has the idea of a spirit of partisan rivalry. That's what the term means. The proof of their immaturity was their bickering and rivalry over their leaders. Over their leaders. Paul says, this isn't the way those who live in the spirit conduct themselves. This is the kind of stuff you see some see from people who are living in the flesh. People who are living in the flesh. Whatever you may say about yourselves and whatever others that you are allied with may say about you, your behavior tells a different story. Your behavior tell a different story. They may in fact be spiritual, but guess what? They're living like unbelievers. And we see this even even today, there are Christians who, on the face of it, on, in principle, appear to be living for and focused on Christ and the gospel. But in reality, they are still pursuing the interests of their flesh, but they're using God and his word to accomplish it. All they ever seem concerned about is making sure that they're part of the right group, the right tribe, painting everyone outside of that group as other and evil and ungodly. In a sense, tribal association has become embedded as a part of their personal identity. And therefore, every departure from the tribe is viewed as a frontal and personal assault on them personally. And it must be attacked and met with that level of response, defended to the death. And this is all under the, the, the banner of contending for the faith. But it's not contending for the faith. It's contentiousness. It's contentiousness. It's not imitating Christ. It's immaturity. It's immaturity. And some of these folks, we know them, we've, we've encountered them over the years. They read, you know, the two accounts of Jesus in the Gospels clearing out the temple with a whip. And they read Acts 23 where, where Paul calls the high priest a, a whitewashed tomb. And they build an entire paradigm for ministry along, around those three incidents. As if somehow that is the default way a Christian is to act all the time. And that's what was going on in Corinth. He says, he calls them out here, just like he did in chapter 1. People are running around saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Christ. And Paul says, that's immature. That's immature. We are, we are running around, and they are running around in their immaturity, 
I think sometimes there's a striving, a selfish striving for some kind of cheap, derived glory that we hope might rub off on us by showing that we're associated with this person or that person. It's immature. We are seeking glory in the wrong person or persons. The Corinthians and even believers today itch. Sometimes there's an itching for identity through personal rivalry. And Paul says that's immaturity. It's immaturity. And listen, if all we ever do as Christians is push people away because we're so busy fighting every other Christian and their mother, rather than what God's called us to do, which is to patiently preach and teach God's word and shepherd souls toward maturity, if that is our default setting, we will reap the, what our immature efforts sow. And that is our churches will be saddled with quarrels and jealousy and personal rivalry. And as James reminds us about those who pursue earthly wisdom, there will be disorder and every evil thing in our midst. That is the way of immaturity. Contentious rivalry, itching for identity through personal rivalry. Paul's going to lay out for us now in verses 5 to 6 a better way. A better way. He's called out their immaturity in verses 1 to 4, and he pivots now in verses 5 to 6 to show them this more excellent way. And rather than puffing themselves up and, and boasting in uh, men, I'm part of this group and I'm part of that group, and fracturing the church, Paul shows them there's a second way of thinking and behaving in the body of Christ, and this way is mature. This way is mature. The cross, God's wisdom, everything about our life in Christ, we've said this all along, it excludes, it does away with human boasting, including boasting in men, in leaders. This wisdom has been revealed and made known to us through the Holy Spirit, and it should have been known to the Corinthians because of that. But they were operating, as we said, from the perspective of their sinful flesh. They were coming at each other and acting like mere men. And their bickering and their conflicts and their boasting were the evidence that convicted them of being infants in Christ. So Paul pivots in verse 5 and 6 to instruct them how a spiritual person, a person, a man or a woman filled with the Spirit, how they think and how they conduct themselves in the church. And so he says in verse 5, Five, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. The rhetorical questions in verse 5 are, are again very forceful. Paul is arguing to make a point here. What, after all, he says, is Paul? What is Apollos? You say you belong to Paul. Some of you are claiming to belong to Apollos. Don't you know at the end of the day what Apollos and Paul and Peter and whoever else, don't you know what they are? Who they really are? Are they some kind of masters 
that you, that you can attach yourself to? Or are they some kind of lords that you can belong to? Don't you understand what they and every other Christian leader are? And to answer that question, he, he tells us the end of verse 5. How he, In answering that question, he tells us how the mature think about the church, its leaders, and the work of ministry. He says, what is Paul? What is Apollos? What is this leader? What is that leader? Verse 5, servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity. Paul says, we're just servants. They're just servants. The, the image of a servant uh, dominated and controlled Paul's understanding of his relationship to Christ, the church, and the gospel. And that must be true of us. The idea of a servant. We are God's servants. And as such, we are servants of the gospel, servants of one another in the church. He learned this from Jesus, who was the greatest of servants. Mark 10, verse 44, Jesus says, Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Or as he said in the upper room, he says, Jesus telling his disciples, who's greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? The obvious answer, is it not the one who reclines at the table? That was obvious. But Jesus says, I am among you as one who serves. Paul says, we are nothing more than servants. We're like those who wait tables in the master's house. When you go to a restaurant, a fancy restaurant, a really nice restaurant with excellent food and high marks, you don't, you don't boast about the servants that serve you the food. The, you, you boast in what? Maybe the chef, if he's a well-known chef. You boast in the meal. You'll tell people about the ambiance, oh, what a beautiful location. Right? You don't talk about the servers. You don't run around boasting about the servers. Oh, I had Antonio. He was my server. Who cares? Who's Antonio? Paul says, we're just servants. We're like those who wait tables. We are simply the ones through whom you believed. We are conduits passing along God's grace. We are servants delivering up God's good news. We are ministers administrating God's saving work. We are slaves stewarding the master's resources. That's it. That's it. And they, as servants, Paul says, cannot even take credit for that because he says we did it as God gave us opportunity. The emphasis here is on the fact that the Corinthians didn't believe in Paul or in Apollos or anyone else, but through them came to believe in Jesus Christ. And then he uses this very simple agricultural analogy in verse 6 to make his point. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. 
He is absolutely referring to his efforts and Apollos' efforts in and amongst their midst. He says, just like the farmer must sow the seed, and another must come along and water that seed to make sure it germinates and grows, so I was sowing gospel seed in your midst, and Apollos was watering that seed, but in the end, who's doing the real work? God is. God is the one causing the growth. This is how... He says, this is how you need to think about the church. This is how you need to think about ministry. This is how we think about ministry as apostles with a capital A. This is how we think about ministry. He says, we're nothing more than servants. Chapter 4, he says, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. That's all we are. This is how the mature think about the church and ministry. This is how, this was his perspective. This is how the mature think about the church and ministry. The infantile, they itch for identity through personal rivalry and partisan rivalry. The mature make disciples through divine opportunity. The mature make disciples through divine opportunity. They recognize that leaders, even influential leaders and well-known leaders in the church, are nothing more than servants through whom you believed as God gave them opportunity. That's it. The mature realize that Christian leaders are not people to boast in or to belong to. And that there's no hand-me-down glory that's going to fall at your feet by you being associated with them and separating yourself from everyone who doesn't line up behind them on every little thing. And instead, they are faithfully laboring about the task of making and maturing disciples of Christ who run to win as God gave them opportunity. That's the mature mindset. And so... Paul lays out this stark contrast, the immature in verses 1 to 4 and the mature in verses 5 to 6. As he comes to verses 7 and 9, he draws some preliminary conclusions. That's what he says there in verse 7. So then, so then. That's what the so then signifies. He's, He's moving from what to so what. He lays out some very practical takeaways from this contrast he's given in verses 1 to 6 between the mature and the immature. And so I just want to give you four kind of sub-points here, four takeaways, practical takeaways, as we think about Paul's correction, Paul's contrast of the mature and immature. First, takeaway about how we're to think about church and ministry. First, God gets all the glory. God gets all the glory. Verse 7, So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. You know, back in verse 5, he says, "What what after all, that's what that means, what after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? The answer in verse 5 and again now in verse 7 is this, nothing. Nothing. It's not that Paul or Apollos or even you and I don't have gospel labor to be about and to take up. We do. But the grand scheme of things, we have very little importance in the big picture. 
we have very little importance in the big picture. Some of you who were with us when we studied through Ecclesiastes a couple of years ago will remember in chapter 1, as Solomon rehearses the just sort of the inevitable kind of round and round repetition of history. The sun comes up and it goes down and year after year comes and goes. And remember in chapter 1, verse 11, we made the point, and Solomon makes the point, that we all live and we all die and eventually no one will remember you. No one will remember you. That is his point in chapter 1. You and I won't be the exception to that reality. Do you understand? You're not going to be the exception to that rule. God's the one causing the growth. So boast in him, glory in him. Resist every temptation to bicker about men whose efforts are a drop in the bucket compared to God's efforts. Glory in Christ and hold fast to his word because he alone saves. He alone sanctifies Now, in saying what he said now in verses 5, 6, and 7, that everyone is nothing, he's not saying that we have no part to play or we don't have any vital role to carry out, which leads into the second takeaway in verse 8, and that is we will be righteously rewarded in that final day. We will be righteously rewarded in that final day. Verse 8, now, he who plants and he who waters are one. Stop right there for a second. When he says he who plants and he who waters are one, he is emphasizing that we all have a shared purpose. We are all laboring for the same harvest as Christians. There is a shared purpose for which we exert ourselves. For the mature, we are all about the task of making disciples. That's our goal. That's been our motto in our church for years, the mature recognize that that is the unifying goal that we are all moving toward, to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who run to win. And we are all pressing on toward that end, fruitfulness, a harvest of souls. We are united in that effort. But that doesn't mean that we don't have differing roles to play or that God doesn't take notice of our efforts we are not all rewarded equally in that final day. That's why he says in verse 8, but each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. The nature of the rewards is what we're going to look at next week. So I'm not going to say too much about it because that is really where he's going in verses 10 to 17. But the point is that even... Through, even though you and I are fairly insignificant in the grand scheme of things, and, and uh, at the end of the day we'll die and if Lord tarries, we'll all be forgotten. But God is just to reward accordingly for our efforts. So we need to be about the task. We need to be laboring in that field. Hebrews 6 verse 10, the writer of Hebrews says, For God is not so unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and still ministering to the saints. God doesn't forget your gospel efforts, your service, your sacrifice, your ministry to one another. He will reward each. 
Yes, we are all moving in the same direction. Yes, we all have the same goal. And yes, we're all laboring in the same field. But each one will receive his own reward for his own efforts. And for some, as he gets into chapter 10, uh, verse 10 and following, some will find out that a lot of what they were laboring for burns up because it wasn't for Christ and it wasn't according to his word and it wasn't according to the foundation of Jesus Christ. And they will be saved, but they will be saved, he says, as through fire. But some will be rewarded according to their efforts and they will be proportional, really generously proportional, above and beyond what we deserve. So we need to be about the task. A third implication comes to us in verse 9. We are laborers together under God. We are laborers together under God. So God gets the glory. We are righteously rewarded. We are laborers together under God. If you look at verse 9, the beginning part of verse 9, he says, For we are God's fellow workers. Now, there's two ways you can interpret that. Um, We are workers with God in the sense of being co-laborers like God and us. I've got my arm around God and we're kind of going together. Or we are workers together under God. Under God. Each one of us, as God's children, belong to him. That's the idea. It's a genitive of possession, each one of God's children belong to him and labor underneath him. And the word order and the context make that determination. And it's my conviction that that second option is the correct way to understand Paul's statement because the word itself has the idea of with built into it. So he's saying, we are God's workers under God together. We are all laboring in the same field. The implication then is that you simply cannot say, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Peter, or I belong to whoever. In other words, that spirit-filled Christianity and divisiveness are incompatible. We're all laboring in the same field. We all belong to Christ. We are all laborers under God, striving to carry out his gospel mandate to make disciples. And so I can look across the community and across the region and across the world, and I can thank God for the many faithful gospel laborers who are out there preaching the word and making disciples and shepherding souls toward maturity and even though we may disagree on secondary and tertiary and whatever the next term, whatever that is, quaternary issues, we may disagree on those things and philosophy of ministry may look a little different, but I can rejoice in them and they are not our competition. They are not the enemy. And at the same time, I can still pray as God in Christ tells us to pray, Lord, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Send more laborers into your harvest. And that needs to be our prayer. That needs to be our prayer as a church. Fourth and final implication, we have people to pour into, not push away. 
a fourth and final implication from verse 9 is this. We have people to pour into, not push away. If you look at verse 9, he says, We are God's fellow workers. We are working together uh, for God, under God. And then he pivots. He pivots from speaking about himself as a leader, as an apostle, as a, as a shepherd of souls. And then he turns the gaze on them as the church. You are God's field, God's building. The point he's been making in this whole section is everything is God's. The church belongs to him. Its ministry belongs to him. Paul belongs to him. Apollos belongs to God. Everything is God's. You are God's field, and that needs to be sown. You are God's building, and that needs to be built up. That means each and every one of us who has the Spirit needs to be asking ourselves, who am I pouring God's word into? Who am I pouring God's word into? Who am I making a disciple of? Who am I leading into the knowledge of Christ? Maybe that's an unbeliever that needs to hear the good news for the very first time. Maybe that's a family member that needs to be followed up on, who, hears, who doesn't know Christ but maybe needs to have another gospel conversation. Maybe that's a new believer who needs someone to put their arm around them or her and to come alongside and to, and to lay a foundation for just basic Christianity. And maybe that's a maturing Christian who needs uh, instruction and more encouragement and opportunity to test the waters of discipleship and in ministering to others and equipping them to do that work. Whatever that is, wherever they are along the spectrum, we need to be moving people from where they are to where God wants them to be. This is the spirit-filled life. If you're not doing that, you're not accomplishing God's purposes for his church. Now, maybe that's just one or two people, and maybe that's your children, and maybe whatever that looks like, but you must, as a Christian, be pouring your life into somebody, somehow, some way. And we need to spend a whole lot less time worrying about who we need to push away and who we need to separate ourselves from because they might not agree with us on this little issue or that little issue. And rather than being quarrelsome and contentious, we are to be gentle and patient, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they might come to their senses. Because that's what the Lord's slave does. 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. The Lord's bondservant is not quarrelsome. They're not contentious. In our circles, the issue we need to be concerned most about is not compromise. It's contentiousness. We, as a church, have a very robust doctrinal statement, a very robust commitment to the truth. So the issue we need to be most concerned about is not theological compromise. That is not going to take this church down. But we can very much get on the wrong side of being contentious and separating and being critical of other believers to a, in a way that is immature. And we need to be extra careful not to fall victim to that because Paul says that kind of an attitude is not contending for the faith. It's immature. And we need to be focused on making disciples 
who run to win. Our glory, our identity, our salvation are all firmly bound up in Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? You don't need anything from anybody else to validate that if you're in Christ. That's what he says at the end of verse chapter 3. He says, you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. So stop trying to make other people your thing. Don't worry about that. Rest in who God has made you to be in Christ. You're free to serve others and to give your life away. To spend and be expended for other people's souls. We live for Christ. We labor under him. This is our goal. This is our commitment. God gets the glory. We are rewarded. We are laborers together under God. And we need to look, be on the lookout for people to pour into, not be on the lookout for people to push away. And next week, he will teach us how we are to think about that reward and to make sure we're building on the right foundation. So Paul's not done yet. There's much, much more for us to learn. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your... Thank you for Paul's correction. You know, we let the text, Lord, speak kind of the way it speaks. Some weeks are more encouraging. Some weeks are more corrective. Some weeks are more confrontational. Some weeks are more comforting. The text derives that, Lord. Study it section by section, verse by verse. Uh, Lord, I'm thankful for the many faithful gospel laborers that you placed in our midst, and we see the work of, the God, of God's word going out. And Lord, guard our hearts from a spirit of contentiousness. Guard our hearts from a spirit of criticism that we wouldn't wage war against other believers who are out there in the same field sowing the same seed, but rather that we would have a heart that says, we're going to pray for them. We're going to come alongside them. We're going to we're going to rejoice in their victories and give you the glory all along, knowing that you are the one accomplishing the work. If some other church, Lord, has greater numerical success, sees greater influence, has more staff, greater, greater outreach, greater whatever, Lord, may we take a stand back and say, wow, praise God. May we continue to rejoice with those who rejoice. And we pray that they would do the same for us. Lord, guard us. Help us to be about that gospel work. Stir us up. Stir, us, stir, stir up our hearts to be able to really be pouring our lives into others, to grow to the place where we actually have something to give away toward those who are in need. And may you make disciples throughout this church and outside this church for the name, the, the glorious name of Jesus Christ, we ask. And it's in his name that we ask all of this. Amen. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church, visit us online at cascadesbiblechurch.com.